Well, we all have questions. Uh, some of our questions are chronic questions that we have been asking for years that we haven't gotten good answers to. Here's a fun fact for you. Uh, children ask on average 125 questions a day. If you're a young parent, you're probably, I guess, that's about right. Uh, we adults ask about six questions a day. And I think it just says something about how God has wired this curiosity, this wonder in children. They're asking questions, and it's part of how they grow and they learn. Now, we as adults, um, we may ask fewer questions, but as we grow, I think the depth, the complexity of our questions grows as well. I mean, we start asking some much harder questions as we get older. As a minister, you might surmise, I do get asked some tough ones. I mean, I get asked... People wrestle with certain texts in the Bible and they want to know what my take on that is or they're just wrestling with some deep uh, life questions or they're wondering about the nature of God or things. I mean, this week I got, a, I got an email from a, a, young, um, a young wife, a young mom out in Florida. I'd never met her before, but, but we kind of got acquainted through an ex-member or a member that moved away uh, back to Florida from this church. And, and she was... She was opening up about her marriage and some struggles that she's having and just asking some really tough questions about, about her life situation. But, uh, but we do. We have these questions that we wrestle with. And this series, I'm calling it Ask Me Anything. If you get on Reddit, you probably know what an Ask Me Anything is, where a celebrity or someone gets on there and says, hey, just ask me your questions. Let's dialogue. And, and it's really popular on there. But I, I'm coming up with this because I think God is big enough to handle our questions. I think God can, can handle what we're going to bring to Him. And if we humbly open His Word and bring some of our questions to Him, we may not get the exact answers we want, but we'll definitely get some perspective to help us on some of the stuff that we wrestle with. Like, you go through the pages of Scripture, and you see men and women of faith, people who trusted God, who served God, who tried to follow God, coming to God with some really deep questions. I mean, the prophet Habakkuk had these questions. He wondered why he looked out at the world and why he saw so much brutality, violence, unfairness, when he knew God was in control. He's, he couldn't make sense of that, and so he brought that to the Lord. He opens up his book in Habakkuk chapter 1. This is from the message, so it might sound a little bit different. But he says, God, how long do I have to cry out for help before you listen? How many times do I have to yell, help, murder, police, before you come to the rescue? Why do you force me to look at evil, stare trouble in the face day after day? Maybe you've asked questions like that to God. Maybe you've brought that to, to the Lord in prayer. I mean, you're watching the news, you're watching your Twitter feed, or you're just watching what's going on in your neighborhood, and you're like, God, there's so much wrong in the world. When are you going to do something about this? The prophet Jonah, <laughs> I love Jonah. I mean, he struggled, right? He had all kinds of questions for God. God, why are you sending me to the capital of Assyria, to Nineveh, to help, to serve, to minister in this and this place that is really the heart of Israel's enemies. Why? I think about the prophet Jeremiah, great prophet. He came to God with his questions about the inherent unfairness of life. 
Why on earth, God, don't you do something about this? Chapter 12, verse 1 of Jeremiah, he says, I would speak with you, God, about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? He's looking out at the world and he says, you know, a lot of really godly, righteous people don't seem to have it so good. And a lot of the cheaters, a lot of the wicked folks, they seem to be doing just fine. God, what's up with that? And so, or I guess I need to throw this out there as well. I mean, Jesus on Calvary encircled by brutality and violence and injustice, he asked the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, so it's clear. You look at the stories of the faithful of Scripture, these women and men. They, they, they loved God. They trusted God. But they had these lingering questions. And so having these questions that you wrestle with, tough questions, that's not indicative of a lack of faith, okay? Having tough questions is not indicative of a lack of faith. I would say, biblically, it's a sign of authentic faith. It's a sign that you trust, you believe, and so you're bold enough to bring these questions to the Lord. So write this down in your outline this morning. In the Bible, um, God consistently welcomes the honest, heartfelt questions of his people. The Father says, I can handle it. Bring that stuff that you wrestle with to me. In John chapter 9, we come across a man who had every right to ask some, some really tough questions of the Lord about the basic fairness of life. He was blind. In fact, he had been born blind. He had never seen in his life Never seen a sunrise, sunset, never seen the, the colors of spring, never seen a smile on his mom's face. He had never seen, it was just darkness all the time. Throughout his childhood, into adulthood, he was completely dependent on the pity of other people. Look, first century Israel, not handicap accessible, okay? If he was going to get to point A, from point A to point B, it was because he was going to interrupt someone. And they were going to take him there. If he was going to enjoy a meal, if he was going to get anything done, somebody had to take pity on him and help him. And while others around him, grew up around him, were following their dreams and following in love and starting families and, and basically doing as they pleased, the only reality for him, past, present, or future, the only thing he could look forward to was more darkness so he lived off the charity of a passerby who might take pity on him, drop a couple coins into his beggar's purse. That's all he did. Morning till night. Beg. And I don't know this for a fact, okay? But I wonder if the hardest thing for him was that given the theology of that day and time... He knew that everybody that passed by and looked at him assumed that he had done something to deserve this fate. That he had sinned, that he had blown it, that somehow God's cosmic justice was being done in his suffering, in his blindness. That was just assumed in the first century. If things were going wrong in your life, God 
was cursing you. You deserved it. Surely God wouldn't allow an innocent, good person to suffer a fate that terrible. So as he's begging one time in or just outside of Jerusalem, Jesus comes walking by, John chapter 9, and the disciples with Jesus are asking some questions about this guy. They see him, and they wonder, they wonder what most people do. They wonder, who sinned that he should end up like this? Was it him? Maybe a step removed? Maybe his parents did something terribly wrong, and they were cursed with this blind baby who grew into a young man, and Jesus said, look, this blindness, nah, it's not caused by sin. It's not something anybody deserves in this life. It's not some sort of cosmic fairness playing out. This man's blindness will end up displaying God's glory. It will end up being a billboard for the power and presence of God. And Jesus, one thing I think about in this story, as you read these stories, I like to picture something very concrete. In this story, I like to picture the hands of Jesus. Hands of flesh and bone, fingernails, not manicured. These are carpenter's hands, right? These are rough hands, strong hands. And in this story, his hands reach into the dirt, pick up a little bit of soil. He adds some saliva, and he makes a, a crude ointment. And he slathers it over those eyes, those blind, dead eyes. And then Jesus tells that man, hey, why don't you go over to the pool of Siloam and rinse that stuff off your eyes. And you can imagine what happened. He goes over, picks up some water, rinses those eyes off, and he can see for the first time in his life instantaneous, miraculous, blind to 20-20 vision, just like that. He gets home, and the neighbors see this guy that they've seen a thousand times before, and they're like, man, it sure looks like the blind guy. Can't be him, though, because this fella can see. And I love the text. It says, he interrupts, and he's like, no, no, it's me. <laughs> it's me. I met Jesus over by the pool of Siloam. I can see, folks. The religious enemies of Jesus, the Pharisees, um, they got some questions. This healing took place on the Sabbath. Good, godly, righteous people, they didn't work on the Sabbath. So this is obviously a sign, if Jesus was involved in this, that he is not good, he is not godly, he is not righteous. He's not following the law. No true man of God would work on the Sabbath. And so they bring this newly sighted man into their presence. And they say, what do you have to say about Jesus? What's your opinion of Jesus? And Jesus says, or this man says, he's a prophet. Translation, he is a man of God. In the end, the Pharisees, of course, refuse to accept this. They don't even believe the miracle is authentic. This must be fake. This must be pretend. Jesus couldn't possibly heal a man. He couldn't do this on the Sabbath especially. This man had never really been blind. It's a little tricky position for them because there's a big community around this guy. They've seen him for years. And they, yeah, he's blind. It's a little tricky for them because this man's parents are around 
who raised him. They know that he was blind. And so they try to grill the parents about what happened. Um, And the parents are kind of afraid of making the Pharisees mad. I mean, they're powerful religious people. They could shut them out of the synagogue. And so the Pharisees are like, parents, what happened? And the parents are clever. They're like, they're not going to answer that. They're not going to get in trouble. They say, our son's, a, our son's a grown man. You can ask him. So once again, they turn to this newly sighted man and they say, okay, we know that Jesus is a sinner, so we know he couldn't have healed you. What do you have to say? And the blind man, look, he says, I love this answer, don't you? He says, I don't know. I don't have to answer to all your questions. I can't tell you whether he is a sinner or not. What I can tell you is I was blind and now I see. And what happened was an encounter with Jesus. End of story. And we're going to talk for just a minute. I mean, there are a lot of passages we could go to to talk about suffering, to talk about pain, to talk about these questions about injustice. But we're going to go to this story. John chapter 9, and just talk a minute about perspective on this age-old theological question that seems to be kind of unsolvable. What is up with the pain in the world? The first thing, and there's humility required here, but the first thing for disciples is this. Disciples acknowledge that there is much they do not know. There is much we don't know. And so we resist the easy answers about human suffering. The trite answer. God has a plan. God will never give you more than you can handle. We resist the easy answers. The first verse there, or the first couple of verses, the the disciples have questions, not answers. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus says, neither Bad questions, wrong questions, you're not getting it. And the people asking the questions here are disciples. They know Jesus. They've seen Jesus heal. They've seen Jesus pray and watched God answer those prayers. They know the Lord Jesus. They're believers. And they've got questions. Plenty of questions. And I bet maybe you've got some questions for God based on things going on in your world. I mean, this man, (laughs) this man had been a baby, a blind baby. Where's God in that? What's good about that? What's right about that? And not only did did the disciples not have the answers, but their questions weren't even on target, right? I mean, their questions, A, who sinned, this man or his parents? B, which one of those? Jesus says neither. Their questions were honest, but they were off target. And often, trying to figure out why a tragedy happened, why suffering is happening, often trying to figure out why is a fool's errand. In this case, the reality is something they had never even considered. That the suffering of this man was there to point to the glory of God. 
that second bullet point there on your outline, disciples appreciate that a season of suffering can display God's presence in new and powerful ways. A season of suffering can display the power and presence of God in a way that sunshine and rainbows never could. Verse 3, Jesus says, This happened so that the work of God might be displayed, might be put on a billboard in this man's life. The work of God on display in high def. In this case, through an instantaneous and miraculous healing of a blind man. Explainable only to those watching. Explainable only by the power of God. Now, at other times, the work of God is put on a billboard, is shown in high def on display for everyone to see. Not through a miracle, not through an instantaneous healing, but rather through the way a woman or man of God bears up under suffering. How are they thriving? How is there joy in their life? How do they persist? And the answer is only explainable by appealing to the power of God. British evangelist Leslie Weatherhead once wrote, No one denies that immense good has been achieved in the world by suffering saints, but it was not their suffering that made them saints. It was their reaction to suffering. It was such a splendid reaction that they accomplished far more good than most people accomplish with their health. There's no indication, disclaimer here, no indication in John chapter 9 or in any other place that I can find in the scriptures that God delights when people suffer. I can't find it anywhere in the Bible. So we need to be careful. Very careful about blaming God for the suffering that we see. And while God may not be the cause of suffering, Jesus reveals to us that He can redeem pain. Even, like in John chapter 9, a lifetime of pain for His glory and for His sovereign purposes. And now this one's kind of a no-brainer, but Jesus draws it out. And so I think we need to draw it out in John chapter 9. It is that in the midst of suffering, look, disciples use their time and opportunities to help and serve. Disciples get involved in the messiness. Disciples are willing to step into the darkness in other people's lives. This is what Jesus says. He calls his guys together after this healing. John chapter 9, 4 and 5, he says, We need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here, working while the sun shines, while we got opportunity. When night falls, the workday is over. For as long as I'm in the world, there is plenty of light. I am the world's light. And so Jesus, he allows the pain around him to interrupt his schedule And so he stops by the pool of Siloam. He he stops, he sees the man, he speaks with the man, he touches the man. He gets involved in the situation, he helps. Now we may not be able to heal, or maybe God will heal at times through our prayers. 
But a lot of times, when someone's suffering, when someone just feels covered up in darkness, a lot of times it is a very powerful thing just to be near, to give a hug, sit with them, be quiet with them. That's as powerful as a lot of other things we do sometimes. And, you know, Jesus looks at his disciples here and he says, Hey, you guys, you're going to come across people in pain. Do something. A lot of people ignored the blind man, walked away from the blind man. Jesus comes in. He invites his disciples to come into that darkness. He says, This is your work day. I'm the light of the world. I'm here. Bring my light into the darkness that people suffer with. And so part of the answer to this age-old problem of suffering, of pain, why does God allow? Part of the answer, Jesus says, is you. You are part of God's answer to the pain in the world. The next thing here is this, and I love this, is that disciples are grateful that the Lord is near when we suffer. He goes with us through our pain. God does not turn away from us when we're struggling. We see in that first verse of the chapter, as Jesus went along, he saw a blind man. Other people didn't, man. They turned away. They wouldn't look. They avoided. They ignored him. Jesus saw him. Jesus engaged with him. And that's profound to me because this is the single greatest answer to the problem of suffering. Not only does God care, not only does he know about our struggle, God enters into it, into, into it with us. He walks beside us. He puts his arm around us. I think about well, a lot of stories in the Gospels. I think about the story where Lazarus passes away. His sisters, Mary and Martha, are mourning. They're devastated. They're heartbroken. And look, we know Jesus is at one point going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But before he does, Jesus wept. Jesus got in that pain with them. Cried with them. And Jesus came into this world, right? And he shared our suffering He took nails and a crown of thorns. He was part of our suffering. The psalm says in Psalm 34, verse 18, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. He doesn't sit back and dispense pious platitudes when we suffer when we mourn he comes up beside us he holds us close and finally and this is so important to understand we'll finish here this morning disciples see the kingdom of god pointing toward a future without suffering okay Curious phrase, just two words there in John chapter 9. Miraculous signs. This is an important phrase for, the, for John in his gospel. When Jesus heals, when Jesus performs a miracle, when he casts out a demon, when he causes a lame man to walk, a blind man to see, a deaf man to hear, it is a miraculous sign. What does a sign do? A sign points down the road, right? Seventy-five miles to San Antonio. 
Next exit, Grand Canyon. And people typically don't stop at the sign and take selfies. People don't typically send a, a postcard of the sign. People don't look for a hotel close to the sign. They don't stay at the sign. The sign points them down the road. The sign points to something bigger. It points to something better. And every time you see a miracle in the New Testament, know this. Jesus is pointing to heaven. Jesus is pointing to eternity. He didn't come in the world and heal every sick person. But what he did was heal a few and display the kingdom and point us down the road. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Something better is coming. Don't hold on. Now, as you follow Jesus in the gospel, you see people getting kind of confused here, right? I mean, they held on to the signs. They loved the signs. They didn't always notice what the signs were pointing toward. They, they wanted a miracle. God, take the pain away today. But they had less interest in putting their hope in the kingdom. Hey, we can high-five at the sign. We're getting close. Only a few more miles. We can get excited. When you pray for a loved one and that cancer goes into remission, you can get excited. You can feel some joy. You should. But hey, we know eventually that loved one is going to die. The cancer may come back with a vengeance or heart failure or car accident. I mean, <laughs> we rejoice in the sign, but... We don't hang on to it. We let it point us forward. Point us toward the kingdom. Truth is, every time Jesus healed a blind person, made a lame person to walk, cast out a demon, he was pointing toward heaven. He was pointing toward our destination. He was pointing to the world as God intends it. A world without sickness. A world without death. A world without cancer. A world without tears. So this morning, do you have some questions that you want to bring to the Lord, you're struggling with, you're wrestling with, and we would just encourage you as we sing here in a moment just to put your arm around somebody and pray. Bring those questions to God as faithful people have been doing throughout the centuries. Lay them at the Father's feet. You might get answers or you might just get His presence near to you as you struggle. Or maybe for you it's time to step in to the kingdom of light and say yes to this king, to Jesus Christ and begin following him in this world toward the destination he has planned for you. You can be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and begin walking with Jesus as king of your life. However you need to respond this morning, do that as we stand together and worship.